Matthew chapter 2 in your Bibles this morning. Matthew chapter 2 as young people are being dismissed to Children's Church. Did you all see little Ella over here? You couldn't see her on that side. I wish you could have. Uh, she was standing right here and had the corner of the pulpit hiding her face on one side and her big sister's notebook hiding her face on the other side. But she knew the words. And uh, I was watching that. I have to tell you this. I don't think it'll, as you're turning to Matthew 2, I don't think it will embarrass anybody. But uh, she was being commended, little Ella was being commended by her Sunday school teacher several months ago for being so friendly to visitors. And I just, Ella, I appreciate how friendly you are when they come and the new kids in the class. You just welcome them in and make them feel at home. And she looked at her teacher and said, that's what I do. <laughs> That's what I do. Hey, can I tell you, that's a lesson for all of us. When it comes to visitors to church, just make that what you do. Just welcoming folks. And uh, I appreciated that. Brother Dunlap, or Brother Dunlop told me several times, he goes, Pastor, I just cannot believe how friendly this church is. He said it's unusual. And I'm sitting here thinking it shouldn't be unusual. Uh, but I'm just grateful for that. So let's keep it up. Amen? Welcoming folks. Uh, as they come in, visitors and, uh, and first-time visitors to Matthew chapter 2 and uh, verse number 1 down to, uh, read down to verse number 11. Matthew chapter 2, this first Sunday of December, and as we begin to develop and prepare our hearts for Christmas, uh, there's a particular theme that I want us to focus on as we think about Christ and uh, His being the central focus of Christmas I want us to focus in particular on the theme of worship together with the theme of Christ at Christmas. Worshiping Christ at Christmas. Verse number one. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Herod ruled, just as a side note historically, Herod ruled uh, as a puppet, if you would, of the Romans, uh, the Roman Caesar from 40 B.C. to 4 B.C., and so in the days of Herod the king, and this would have been very much toward the end of his reign, uh, so he would have died soon after Christ was born, uh, not before he committed one final heinous act of slaughtering 25 to 30 babies, uh, two years old and down in the city of Bethlehem. We're told by estimations of the demographics at that time that it would have likely been 25 to 30 little boys, if not more. But in the days of Herod the king, behold, Matthew... One of the Lord's disciples and former tax collector before he met Jesus, he writes, In the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Not installed by Caesar. That's a key distinction. Where is he that is born, a born king? Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star... In the east, that is from where they originated, they saw the star and are come to, what's the word? Worship him. The sole intent that they made the trip was to worship the one born king of the Jews. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Herod knew enough to know that Christ and king were the same in Jewish prophecy. Okay. 
And so he doesn't say where is he or where is the, where the king of the Jews will be born, but where will Christ be born? Verse number five. And these chief priests and scribes, notice, they said unto him, verse number five, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And then he quotes Micah 5 2, who was a contemporary of Isaiah from 700 BC. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. Are you seeing what he's doing here? He finds out the location, pinpoints the location, and now he's pinpointing the time frame. When did that star appear? Because that's going to give him the information he needs to know what age baby he's looking for or child. Verse number 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to what? The house. Not the stable or cattle stall, but the house. Okay. When they were coming to the house, they saw the young child and Mary his mother and fell down and what? Worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Let's pray. Father, help us as we consider the important subject of worship and both as we conclude this year seeking to raise the level and our awareness of worship. And then as we anticipate next year, Understanding from John chapter 4 that you seek people to worship you. And for a very good reason, because you know that in our worshiping you, we are closer to you. And you, in so doing, then sustain us as we know you better. And so, God, I pray that we would, as we anticipate next year, that we would determine to raise the level of our being worshipers as well. Not just individually, but corporately. And I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm burdened in a good sense that we move intentionally towards Christmas. Uh, how many of you have noticed the advertising, the sensationalism, the, the commercialization already taking place? And we notice it every year and sometimes uh, we bemoan it. But you know, I think we get this thing backwards. Society gets it backwards. And that is this, man, December hits and all the Christmas songs come out, all the Christmas decorations come out. Just in case you think I'm turning into a Scrooge or a Grinch, I just want you to know the Christmas tree is already up at my house. Okay, right. But that being said, we just jump in and all of this celebration and excitement, be it at the earthly level or even as it relates to the Christmas story, and then Christmas Day comes... And if we're not careful in our spirits, we're like the little kids when they have these, this 45 minutes of adrenaline rush when they open their presents, and then they're like, what next? Have you noticed that? And now sometimes that catches us adults, too. Can I tell you something? That's really, as I think about it, that's backwards from what it should be. 
When you think about the true first Christmas story, when, when Joseph and Mary came into Bethlehem, they didn't have green and red banners on the light post that said Merry Christmas. They had just finished a grueling 70-mile journey that took them who knows how many days. Mary, nine months great with child, looking for a room in the inn, and there is no room in the inn. They're there under the burden of Caesar Augustus's taxation rules. Very few people are looking for this baby to arrive. Joseph and Mary are poverty-stricken. Probably barely enough money to even get there. I got to tell you, there were no lights and no tinsel leading up to the first Christmas. I got to tell you, after that baby was born, heaven opened wide. And then the praising began. Then the I think we should sing Christmas songs in January. I heard some of you say, let's do it. Mike Daniel told me this morning that he's got a couple of favorite Christmas CDs, and in the summertime, he'll just get one out, stick it in, and crank his air conditioning on max and just sit in his truck and enjoy listening to it in July. And so here's what we're going to do. Okay, we heard a couple Christmas songs today. Decorations are going to be coming. That's already in the works. Okay, we're not being Spartan around here. But I want us to build and then keep going. And one of the ways that we do this is by focusing on biblical worship. Okay. Now, why the wise men? Over the next several weeks, we're going to look at different aspects of the wise men and what they model for us as it relates to worship. Why the wise men? You think about all of the participants in the Christmas story. If you went all the way back to Matthew chapter number 1, Luke chapter 1, Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2, and you look at the genealogies, and then we enter into the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth that would miraculously give birth to Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist, if you included them in the Christmas story. And then the angels giving uh, the announcement, or the angel giving the announcement to Mary, and then Mary being with child of the Holy Ghost, and then going to visit Elizabeth, and then Joseph's part in the whole story as well. And then the trip to Bethlehem, that grueling trip to Bethlehem, and then bringing the shepherds into the story, and then approximately two years after Jesus was born, the wise men coming into the picture. And yet we include them as part of the Christmas story. Of all of the participants in the Christmas story, if you include Simeon and Anna as well, on the eighth day when Jesus was taken to the temple to be circumcised and dedicated... If you include all of those people, here's why I want us to focus on the wise men, because all of the other participants were Jewish people. The wise men were the only Gentiles of the lot. And for the most part, as I sit here looking at this gathering today, we're Gentiles. Now, you might find somewhere if you do a DNA test, you got some Jewish blood flowing in your veins. And if you do, just fine. Okay? But predominantly, we're Gentiles. Another thing that draws my focus and I want to use to draw our attention is that though there are times when both Mary and Elizabeth and others praise God, the angels praise God, 
Wise men, the account of the wise men is the only place in all the Christmas story where the word worship is even used. The action of it may be seen in other places, but as far as the stated intention, it's the only place in the Christmas story. Three times the word is used, obviously once by Herod in his hypocrisy. But when we put it all together, these men came to worship the one that was born king of the Jews. They were Gentiles, and it's the only place, and really, may I say this, the first in the incarnation of Christ, when he became a baby, put on a robe of human flesh, it's the first time where Gentiles worshipped him specifically. And I want us to see this morning the priority of worship. To learn from these wise men that Jesus is worthy. He is worthy of our making a priority. Top of the list of worshiping him. And not just two or three times a week at church. Not just in a morning time or an evening time that you may have alone with the Lord. But with the all of your life. He is worthy of your worship. And Matthew records the account of these wise men. And they become a model for us. First of all, this Sunday we'll see in making worship a priority. Matthew, the former tax collector, transformed by the power of Jesus Christ, about 20 years after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, around 50 A.D., it's concluded by conservative scholars that Matthew wrote his gospel. At the conclusion of the message here in a little bit, we'll talk about the primary focus that he had of writing to the Jews, presenting Jesus as their king. And it's significant that he uses the story of Gentile wise men to establish a pattern of worship as king, worshiping Jesus as king, even as a little baby boy, get this, to the Jewish people who had rejected him as their king. And so Matthew records how they made a priority of worship of Christ. What are some aspects that really not just demonstrate they prioritized worship, but then set a pattern for you and for me as to how we can and must prioritize worship of Christ 2,000 years after Jesus was born. The first I notice is the distance they traveled showed how they prioritized worship. The distance from the east, where they would have come from, and we don't know for sure, but it's the, the term here when they say that they were come from the east in that day was technical terminology for somewhere in the region of modern-day Iraq or Iran. Okay, now they weren't called that back then. But Babylon or Persia, those were the areas that men like this came from. Now, they didn't just go from Babylon, Persia area in the east straight west to Jerusalem. Because of a big desert called the Arabian Desert, the second largest desert in the world, only to the Sahara. 
West to east, it is 700 miles of hot sand. And so nobody traveled that distance and that route in those days. By the way, there were no airplanes. <laughs> in case you're, I know you're not wondering that. Nobody traveled that way. They had to travel what was called the Fertile Crescent. Now, that distance, just as the crow flies, is about 700 miles across barren desert. But they had to travel what was called the Fertile Crescent. They traveled to the north, following the courses of rivers so that they could have access to supplies and water and cities and so on. Traveling the Fertile Crescent, north up the rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates and then west, and then back down south from the northern end into the country of Israel through Syria, Lebanon, and so on. That's the course that Ezra took when he returned from the Babylonian captivity to rebuild the temple, and that Nehemiah would have taken when he returned to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem in the 400s B.C. That distance was 17 Hundred miles one way. The Bible records that it took Ezra and his crew in 450 BC approximately, it took Ezra and his crew, it would actually be 516 years before that, took Ezra and his crew at a minimum of four months to travel that distance. These men traveled the distance for one purpose. To find and to worship him that was born king of the Jews. Now, that's just one way. They had to go home too. 3,400 miles. Aren't you glad nobody had to travel that far to come to church today? Okay. But it's a testimony to us still of the importance of making worship a priority. Now, for you and for me, the distance may be 30 miles. And by the way, I realize I'm preaching to people who are here this morning, okay? Preaching to the choir. You're here, okay? We have folks watching live stream who are not able to be here because of health or other situations, and I'm grateful for that. I did read a couple weeks ago about a pastor who was discouraged when a family that attended his church occasionally came to him and said, Pastor, we just love the live stream. Uh, I call it the COVID convenience. We just love the live stream. And the pastor was at first encouraged. He's like, why do you love the live stream so much? It's because if we don't want to come Sunday morning, we don't have to. We can start the live stream and then our computer captures it and we can come back and watch it anytime we want to. And <laughs> we can do it in our pajamas if we want to. Yesterday we were out shopping and I saw people walking around shopping in their flannel pajamas. I'm like, what's this world coming to? Okay. And in fact, as you can guess, that didn't encourage that pastor's heart at all. The Bible does talk about our gathering together for corporate worship and the importance of that. And I'm glad you're here this morning. But the distance they traveled, we don't have to travel 1,700 miles, praise the Lord, but these men are still a challenge to us. If they traveled 1,700 miles one way, 30 miles, 40 miles, 20 miles, a couple times a week, 
shouldn't be anything to us. To worship, to worship. Maybe the distance when it comes to personal worship is the distance from the bed to the chair. Oh, the pure delight of a single hour that before thy throne I spend. When with thee, my God, I commune as friend with friend. Do we really understand the price that was paid so that an individual believer could have immediate access into the very presence of God? That I don't have to go through some man in a black suit with a white spot in his collar? But I have access because of the man Christ Jesus, who is the mediator, who's opened the way, a new and living way, the author of Hebrews said. And at any time I want, I can enter into the presence of the king. But sometimes it's the distance from the bed to the chair. Sometimes our schedules are so busy, it's the distance that we need to make in our daily schedule. Creating a gap where I can get alone in the presence of the king. We as a nation are busying ourselves into carnality and coldness. So Matthew gives the illustration, the picture of these wise men, Gentile wise men, how they model the importance of making worship a priority by the distance they traveled. Secondly, by the dangers they faced. Not just taking into account any dangers that they would have experienced possibly on a trip in those primitive times of 1,700 miles from the east up over the Fertile Crescent down into Israel. But then once they got there, Pandora's box was waiting on them, so to speak. Now, we'll know for sure when we get to heaven how much scripture these men knew that would have set them on their journey in the first place. But notice what the Bible says. Verse number one, now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Notice this word saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? That uh, verb there saying, When they came to Jerusalem saying, asking, where is he that is born king of the Jews? It's a continuous action. In other words, they apparently didn't know exactly where to go when they got there. So they just started asking in Jerusalem with King Herod on the throne, where is he that is born king of the Jews? They come into Jerusalem. They ask the guards at the gate, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Where's he that is born? Can, can you tell him I'm looking for the one that's born king of the Jews? And finally, <laughs> they created enough of a curiosity and fear in the city that he finally got to Herod's palace. To the one who was called king, installed as king, but not even a Jew himself. An Edomite, a usurper. And notice what these guys are saying. Where's he that is born king? By divine right. Where is he that is born king as opposed to one installed as king? The very question was a threat to Herod. And they, I don't know how much of it they realized or didn't realize. But they were essentially taking a big old stick and swatting at a hornet's nest. 
I saw a video last week of a guy who had a dangerous hornet's nest, nest up in a tree in his backyard, and he decided to use his quad drone, his little drone with four propellers, to bite by bite dismantle that paper hornet's nest hanging in the tree in his backyard and videoed it. That's about what these guys were doing. I mean, you should have seen the hornets coming out of that nest. That's essentially equivalent to what these guys are doing. Herod was known historically to be ruthless. He was insecure and yet powerful. That's a dangerous combination. The Bible said he was troubled and the whole city with him. And I imagine that some of that troubling, that agitation, that fear, that concern began when these wise men started going around saying, where's he that is born king of the Jews? And they're all saying, we know Herod. He had reigned nearly 40 years by this time. And these people, some of these people, he was the only king they'd ever known. And they knew how ruthless he was. He killed two or three of his own sons, killed one or several of his wives, killed a father-in-law, killed anybody that stood in his way. We know the Bible records what he's going to do to what we call the innocents in Bethlehem. History records that when he knew he was going to die, he gave command to his soldiers that at his death they were to gather a group of nobles of Jerusalem, of Israel, and kill them at the same time that he died so that people would mourn and it would seem that they were legitimately mourning for him when in fact they were mourning for the nobles he had slain. This man was heartless. He was cruel. He was wicked. And these guys walked right into the middle of it. Now, for you and for me, the dangers we risk in prioritizing worship may not be a Herod, but it may be our reputation. It may be a reputation at a workplace where because you have publicly professed Christ as Savior and that you are a follower of Christ, you're not going to fudge the numbers on the docket. You're going to do business in a way that honors Christ, even if it costs you a promotion. It may be that the danger that you risk, the price that you pay in being an out-and-out -out worshiper of Christ is popularity in a school, young person. When all the other kids, the popular kids, gather in the hallways and talk about the things of this world, your attitude will be, you know what? My life belongs to Christ. I am a worshiper, an unashamed worshiper of Jesus Christ. And I don't, whatever else they're going to do, I'm not going to have part in it because I stand with Jesus and He with me. Amen. Okay. It may be within your own family you pay a price. In this day of college careers, and, and I'm not against college. I have a couple of degrees myself, and I think if it's God's will for you to get one, get one. And God doesn't call everybody into full-time ministry. I think He's calling more than are responding. But that being said, God doesn't call everyone into full-time ministry. But if it, it, too many Christians too easily get distracted by making money. Making money. Something that's at the control of some guy that most of us don't even know and the value of it goes up and down. Why would you want to fasten your hopes on something that, that is that fickle? And within a family, 
When you determine as a father and as a mother and as a family, we're going to live for Christ. We're going to prioritize the worship of Christ and his being first place in our lives and in our motives and in our decisions, our choices and what we do with our lives. It may be that grandpas and grandmas or family members say, you're holding those kids back. Let me tell you something. When a life is lived completely for Jesus, that's not a life held back. That's a life moved forward. And so it may be the danger being risked of your reputation in the eyes of men, advancement in business or whatever it may be in school, comfort of family. But here's what I want you to think about this one thing. When you think about the danger of risking your reputation to be an out-and-out worshiper of Jesus Christ, I want you to think about this. Philippians chapter number 2 tells us that when Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago to be born as a baby in a manger... And then to live for 33 and a half years and then die as your sinless substitute and my sinless substitute on an old rugged cross. The Bible said that one of the great actions that he did is he made himself of no reputation. And it may be that my reputation in the eyes of men suffers because I become an out and out worshiper of Jesus Christ and I prioritize worship. But let me tell you something. He did that for you and for me. He is worthy. So Matthew records, these men demonstrated the priority of worship through the distance they traveled, the dangers they risked. Notice thirdly, another action. They demonstrated making a priority of the worship of Christ through the diligence that they gave. Notice, if you would, verse number 7. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared... And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, what? Go and search, what? Diligently. And I have to tell you, there's some irony there. I want to kind of step into the story and say, Herod, what do you think they've been doing the last six months? When he said go, it's a, it's a passive voice command. Having been sent by me. Okay, it's very typical of Herod. His arrogance and his thought that he can just tell everybody else what to do. But he tells them, go and search diligently. And I'm just kind of humorously looking at it and saying, you know what? That's what these guys have been doing for the past however many months anyway. Searching diligently. We have no idea all the effort that they had to go to before they ever even left the East to come, to plan the trip, to gather the materials. We know based on travel time, just travel time alone would have at least taken close to a year. What diligence they gave. These wise men in that time were a combination of astrologer and astronomer. Both. Astrologers who seek to tell the future based on the positioning of the stars. Astronomers who actually study uh, the stars as they are created by God. Is there mysticism to the astrology? Yes. And were these guys involved in it at least in some point in their lives? Yes. But you know what I love about this? At some point, God, God was merciful to them. And in spite of their less than ideal means of seeking 
By the way, how many of us actually seek God perfectly? And I love this about God and his mercy. <laughs> Imperfect as their seeking and their means may have been, he still put their story in the book. I don't know where you are today. You may feel like you're floundering, flailing around, trying to find God. Listen, I want you to know you just keep on seeking. And the Bible promises that those that seek him, he will be found of them. Okay. He will. The diligence they gave, were they familiar with Balaam's prophecy of 1400 B.C., Numbers chapter 24 and verse number 17, that a star shall rise out of Jacob? We don't know. Were they familiar with David's prophecy in Psalm 72 and verse number 10, around 1000 B.C., of, of kings that would come from other parts of the world to worship the Lord? Were they familiar with Isaiah's prophecy recorded in 700 B.C., one that is so central to our Christmas season, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Were they familiar with that? We don't know. Were they familiar with Daniel 9, verse number 27, written about 600 B.C. before the Lord came? That from the time that the command would go forth by Cyrus to restore the temple, a calendar would be set in motion, a time clock would be set in motion. And at the end of that, or at a particular point in that time clock, the Bible says that Messiah would come, Daniel 9, 27, and that he would be cut off and not for himself, but for his people. They would have likely had access to some of these prophecies. We have no way of knowing which ones how they put all their information together. But it tells something about the diligence they gave that they went to the lengths they did to find Jesus. Now, let me just say this. You and I have infinitely more than those wise men ever had. We have a completed book. They may have had a few verses here and there. And yet look at how their search was motivated. They didn't have, in a sense, the first coming of Messiah that included his, his birth, virgin birth, and his perfect sinless life, and his substitutionary death, and his supernatural resurrection and ascension back to heaven. They didn't have any of that. You and I have the finished record of all of it. Of all of it. If they gave diligence... And prioritized worship. Then how much more should we? Because he's worthy. He's worthy. Fourthly and finally, and I want to bring this to a conclusion. They demonstrated the priority of worship through the distance they traveled, the dangers they faced, the diligence they gave, and fourthly and finally, the devotion they modeled. Notice, if you would, verse number 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. This is after they left Herod's palace. 
it's kind of, in my imagination, interesting for me to think about. How did Matthew find out this was their response? Can I say this? He wasn't even born yet. How did Matthew know 50 years after it happened? Okay. That when these guys came out of Herod's palace, however wise men rejoice with exceeding great joy. High fives, fist bumps, pump in the air. I don't know. Don't get tangled up in your robes, guys. Okay. But it's nighttime. They come out of Herod's palace. Every step they've been taking is just obeying the light they have. They come out of Herod's palace. It's nighttime. And the star appears to the south. They're like, look, guys. Exceeding great joy. Some people might cry. Others might jump up and down and do circles. I don't know. But let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. They showed the importance of making worship a priority by the devotion that they modeled for you and for me. Rejoicing. And again, think how much more we have than that they had. Our cause for rejoicing is greater than theirs because they were looking for one who they had not seen yet, in a sense, to confirm that he had come. But you and I have 2,000 years of history to prove that he came and that he accomplished hundreds of prophecies from the Old Testament that have been stacking up, if you would, for millennium. He is worthy. He's worthy. They showed it in their praise. They showed it in their posture when they got down there to Bethlehem. They found what they were not expecting. They came searching for him that was born what? King. Not from a human perspective, the son of a poor Jewish carpenter living in a rental house in Bethlehem. Low income. But you know what? I love the words of the first Noel. They came, okay, to seek a king and to worship. That was their intent. Get this but following the star wherever it went. It may lead me to some place that I wasn't expecting, but if it leads me to the king in whatever form I find him, I'm going to worship him. Do you know what the word fell down means? means prostrate. Think of this. Wealth prostrate before poverty. Status prostrate before a commoner, a little toddler. Men prostrate before a little boy. Why? Because the star directed us that this is the king. In their praise, in their posture, in the price 
with which they should, and we're going to look at this in more detail, the gold, frankincense, and the myrrh. We'll look at this in a couple of weeks. This is a king's ransom, so to speak. But then in the person. He showed the priority of worship by the devotion that they modeled, by the one that they worshiped. King, I thought about this. The scripture shows him to be king in prophecy. Think of Psalm 2 and Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. These wise men as Gentiles acknowledged him as king at his birth, though found in poor conditions. Throughout his life, he would refer to himself as king and act as king by giving the laws of a kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, John 13, a new commandment to love one another. And James, the half-brother of the Lord, would say that that was the royal law, the law given by the king to love your neighbor as yourself. He was even a king in his death. And it was a Gentile that acknowledged it as Pontius Pilate told that a sign should be put over an inscription, put over his head that said, King of the Jews. Even in his death, a king. Oh, in his resurrection, he is a king. Because he rose victorious over death. And Revelation chapter 1 tells us that he fastened the keys of hell and death to his girdle. He is the Lord of life and death. King In his commission, Matthew 28, he acted as king. All power, authority is given unto me, Jesus told his disciples. Now you go as my emissaries. And in his coming, Revelation 19, he will be seen as king of kings and lord of lords. And these wise men show us the way. From the very beginning of Christ's life on earth as Gentiles... To worship him, make it a priority, and acknowledge him as king. I want to show you one word, and then I'm closed. I've already gone longer than I meant to. Notice chapter 2. Remember, Matthew's writing this. Matthew's writing this under inspiration. About 20 years after Christ would have ascended back to heaven. About 50 years after Christ's birth. Okay. Matthew was a Jew. He wasn't a very good one because he was a tax collector. Okay, but Jesus had transformed his life. But now, as a Jew, he is writing, as a Jewish believer, a follower of Christ, he's writing primarily to the people of Israel, his own ethnic people, presenting Christ as king of the Jews. To a people that had rejected him as their king, but that Gentiles... Be it wise men, be it Pontius Pilate, be it a centurion at the base of his cross, had acknowledged him as king and God. And so what Matthew does is he uses Gentiles in their worship acknowledging Christ as king to show that this is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and these Gentiles recognized what you didn't recognize. I want you to notice verse number 1, chapter 2. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, what's the next word? Do you know what, what I do? I've been reading the Bible since I was a little kid. Do you know what I do? I read right over stuff like that. Do you see the word Matthew used? Behold. Do you know what that means? Wow. That means, I didn't expect that. 
That means that 20 years after Christ had ascended, when Matthew's writing this down, he still is surprised. He's still overwhelmed by the fact that these Gentile wise men did what they did and pictured what they pictured and modeled what they modeled when it comes to worship. And Matthew says, wow, behold. He's still 20 years later. He can't believe it can't believe it the impact get this the impact that your worship and mine of Christ can have on other people and you know what I want at Christmas season (laughs) I want to take my worship and I want the worship of this church to go to the next level so that people all around us say behold in the King James Version English (laughs) behold Now listen, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior, I want you to know you can before you leave. We'd love nothing more than take God's word and our invitation here in just a moment as we conclude, take you to a private place in the building and show you from the scriptures how you can become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ today. To those of us who already know Christ as Savior, let us follow the model of prioritizing the worship of Christ just like these Gentile wise men did 2,000 years ago when he was still a little toddler in a house in poor Bethlehem. Because he's way beyond that. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is worthy. Father, I pray that you'd help us as we conclude today. Lord, if there's one who doesn't know Christ as Savior, I pray that in a moment as the piano plays, that they would take the opportunity to step out of their seat, meet me here at the front while every head is bowed and eyes closed, and just simply say, Pastor, I'm not sure about my salvation. I'm not sure where I'll spend eternity, and I'd like to settle that today. Lord, I'd love nothing more than for someone to respond like that today if that's their need. And for us as believers, I pray, God, that we would have learned at a new level, a deeper level, the importance of prioritizing worship. Regardless of the distance, the danger it may be, may we give all diligence to worship. May our devotion become a model that draws others to Christ. May we be a worshiping people because that's what you seek. So Lord, work in our hearts where we have gotten cold and lax and carnal, maybe cool, mediocre, in our zeal, our passion to worship you. I pray that we do business with you, God, not just today, but in the coming weeks as we anticipate this wonderful holiday. The incarnation of Jesus Christ to pay our sin debt, purchase our redemption so that we could be guaranteed of eternity with you. And may we worship you. If need be, get on our faces like the wise men. Help us to use these next few moments as you would have us to use them and wisely. In Jesus' name, amen. Join me in standing.